some folks in the government believe that, you know, if we just make it illegal, people will stop paying ransoms and the bad guys will stop attacking. And the fact is, is more than likely what will happen is you will drive behavior underground. If I have a choice, you know, as a small business, like I'm going to lose my small business that I've worked on for 18 years or break the law, but maybe not get caught, I'm going to probably lean toward the second one. Hi, I'm Maggie Miller, and today on Let's Converge, we're talking ransomware and the key questions organizations should ask when attacked. Questions like, do we pay the ransom or don't we? How much should we pay? Or should we tough it out and pay nothing at all? Our guest today is Curtis Minder, a ransomware negotiator with more than 20 years in the information security sector. As the founder and CEO of GroupSense, a cyber reconnaissance company, Curtis knows firsthand how the world of ransomware is rife with contradiction. For example, many business owners believe that paying a ransom is the most expedient way to get through such an attack and protect customers. But some experts claim that ransomware payments only encourage more attacks and higher demands. In 2021, the French insurance conglomerate AXA said it would cancel cyber insurance policies of any firm that made ransomware payments. And last year, North Carolina became the first state to prohibit government agencies from making such payments. So what are enterprise leaders to do? Well, thank you so much, Curtis, for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, before we get into the nitty gritty of how organizations can deal with ransomware, I want to know something really basic. What is it like for you as a ransomware negotiator when you have to actually communicate with these cyber criminals? Is it hostile? Is it threatening? What are these hackers like? Well, it varies. We refer to them as threat actors. Uh, there's a, it's nuanced, but we refer to them as threat actors instead of hackers. There's a positive side to, to being a hacker, but largely it's, it's templatized. They, they have a playbook that they go by and they have an organizational structure, much like a business. And um, once you do a few of these cases where you're working with them, you sort of get familiar with the routine and the playbook. And so unfortunately, while it sounds really exciting, a lot of it is mechanical in nature. Occasionally it does go off the rails and or in a surprise direction, but not too often. Um, The other thing I'll say is that you know, dealing with the the threat actors as part of the negotiation itself is definitely a challenge and and sort of the the meat of the of the scenario. But there's a lot of tradecraft that goes into working with the victim as well. And depending on the size of the victim, that can range anywhere from you know office politics all the way down to being sort of a therapist, if you will, for the smaller businesses. Wow. Well, walk us through the basic trajectory of a ransomware attack. I get into work, my computer systems go down, a ransom is demanded. What are the first steps I need to take and how fast should I take them? That's a great question. And, you know, obviously the safe answer is it depends on your organization. But yes, it is pretty shocking when you come into the office and literally nothing works. And I put an emphasis on nothing. Many of the threat actors have gotten very good at the disruption component of this and you know, when you think about what nothing means, it, it doesn't just mean that you can't use your computer. It doesn't just mean that customers can't interact with you, order product, or, you know, maybe if you're a manufacturer, you can't ship product, but it also means things like you can't make payroll and uh, you can't communicate with your staff electronically. And so it, it poses a bunch of really nuanced challenges. Ideally, an organization of any size should have a plan and they should be executing that plan. That plan is often 
driven by things like cyber insurance. So if you have cyber insurance, they're going to dictate some of the order in which you do things. The other thing I'll say is that when you come across the ransom note itself, they're sort of templatized as well. And it's going to have a series of do's and don'ts from the bad guys, some of which are not bad advice, but and some of them are sort of theater. But the ransom notes don't actually contain the amount that they're asking for. So you don't actually know what the threat actors are asking for until you contact them. And, and so there's a whole art form about when and how quickly you do that. And it is really based um, on the specific circumstances of that attack. Wow. And we know that ransom attacks are on the rise, but how are they evolving? What's new or different about the cyber attacks you're dealing with now compared to, say, a few years ago? Well, they're always iterating and trying to get around our defenses as our defenses improve. So there's a bit of a cat and mouse race from a technical perspective. From a strategy perspective, they've gone as far as to hire call centers to call your customers and employees to tell them about the attack, to shame you into talking to them and paying. So they've really stepped up the extortion part of it. One of the things that's this frustrating is despite the cat and mouse race of the technical components changing, most of the attacks remain the same, even from a few years ago. And it's some basic sort of cyber hygiene mistakes that, that companies are making that are allowing the threat actors in relatively easily. One of the main jobs of a ransomware negotiator is determining what's a reasonable amount to pay for different enterprises at different sizes. So how do you determine that? That is a great question. And you know, when we first started doing this as a practice, we really just focused on the what I would call the threat actor engagement part or the negotiation part. But we kept getting asked on the front end of these cases, should we pay? And our answer for that was always, I don't know, because that's a that's a business decision uh, and, and an ethics decision and somewhat of a legal decision. If I could, I'd walk you through the the basic gates. You know, the first gate is, does paying a ransom for this violate your code of ethics or your core values as an organization? That's the first gate. Because if it does, then we, we, obviously we've answered that question. We're not going to pay uh, no matter what. But maybe you you have sort of priorities in your core values that said, we would rather remain in business and pay our employees, which is usually the case. <laughs> and you get to the next gate, which is, is it illegal? Um, so the, the, the treasury department has a list of folks that thou shalt not transact with. And so understanding the legal ramifications, and now certain states are passing laws, including North Carolina, who's passed a law to say it's illegal to pay a ransom. So we need to understand the compliance components of this. Is it illegal? So now you're through that gate, and here's the really hard one. And it's sort of aligns with your question. Does it make business sense to, to engage and pay a ransom? And how much is the right amount? And that that is a really difficult question because much of the much of the attack is sort of subjective in nature and it's hard to make a quantitative answer to that. I call it the ransomware blast radius where we understand that the initial m- impact of the ransomware attack is operational interruption. You can't use your machines, you can't interact with your customers. There are concentric rings of impact around that operational interruption that sometimes are longer lasting and potentially more expensive or damaging than the operational impact itself. And and some of those are obvious. Um, We talked about the extortion part. So if they're leaking data or contacting your business partners, employees, there's there's a sort of a a brand or trust issue that that generates. And then there's more nuanced ones like 
for example, if you can't make payroll, and maybe you can't make payroll for some time, and attrition occurs, what does it cost to rehire, retrain, you know, and recruit these new staff to replace those people? And those are, that math is really hard. And to the best of our ability, on the front end of the case, we're helping companies walk through this, but it's really up to them as a victim to decide, you know, what, what this is worth. And sometimes that dictates whether we engage at all. Because if we come up with a number that is just unreasonable for the business, then the, the answer is don't even bother contacting the bad guys at all. Um, we're not. We're just not going to be able to do this, and we have to find another way. It's very complicated. Yeah, you know, I interviewed an organization earlier this year who had been hit by a ransomware attack, and they did not pay. The reason was they had a backup of all of their data. So they were able to have all of the data that they needed. They were also able to get back online safely. They had quarantined the the endpoint that was infected. They were able to update every other endpoint and get back online pretty quickly. So, I mean, do you think this is basically a best position to put yourself in for something like this if it's going to happen? Certainly, having a business continuity and technology approach to solving this is the best circumstances. I, I will tell you that often that doesn't work as well as you just described for a lot of organizations. So depending on the size of the organization, you're talking about everything, multiple sites, multiple networks, multiple systems. Restoring that can be a very tedious and time-consuming process. And so we, we've even had cases where folks you know, initially are very confident and say, hey, look, we're, we don't want to pay these guys. We have impeccable backups. We're going to restore. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, good. I don't want to pay him either. <laughs> so let's <laughs> let's let's do that. Uh, but then they call me 12 hours later and say, oh, it turns out it's going to take eight weeks <laughs> to oh, wow. restore this. And you know, we need we need yeah. this thing running by Wednesday. Uh, let's go. So it it really depends on the organization and 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 how those backups uh, and business continuity processes are orchestrated. On the technology side, I mean, I you know, I've always said there's like in my mind there's four ways that we we start to curb the ransomware problem. One is prevention. That's my favorite because it's like sphere of influence. You know, it's it's under our control. It's relatively inexpensive and proactive. Two is technology, which is what you're talking about, tools that can can detect the threat, quarantine it and minimize the impact. Three would be policy. So Right now, if you're a ransomware victim, in a lot of cases, you have two options. You pay a ransom or you go out of business, or you pay a ransom or you, you, you lay people off. Or if you're a hospital, you pay a ransom or people die, which is like a real thing. Yeah. And, and I, I believe there is a, there's room for a third option that could be driven by policy, which uh, affords victims some recovery, subsidized recovery program that that helps them from having to pay a ransom, but stay in business. And so that's something I've been working on in Washington. Um, the last one is is my favorite, but least likely, and that is negative consequences for the bad guys. <laughs> mm-hmm. But as you know, most of the bad guys are operating in sort of unfriendly countries with no extradition and sort of unofficial amnesty from their home government. So that's that's the least likely. Yeah, and I agree. This organization I spoke to, they were very lucky in the situation they were in. They said even the FBI, who they were working with, told them they were in a better position than pretty much any other company going through something like this. Well, hopefully we can make that the the, the kind of the rule and not the exception in the future. Yeah, but I do like where you were going with the prevention angle. So what, what are some of the things organizations can do to be proactive? For example, how much uh, strong cyber hygiene help an organization might need to fight off or minimize attacks? Yeah, I think one of the sort of advantages of being 
on the response side, and this is true of both technical incident responders and in the work we're doing, is we get sort of to take inventory of how the threat actors gain access in every case. And if you distill those down, you find that the majority of the cases that we work, if not 80 plus percent, were sort of preventable from the beginning if they had done some basic cyber hygiene things, like you said. And it's it's frustrating because most of our audience is probably technical. They're probably cyber-focused folks. They are going to roll their eyes, and that's okay. I'm not offended because we've been talking about these things for a long time, but they're still not getting done in many organizations or not done well. So those are things like password policy and credential policy. So you know, complex passwords, no password reuse. And when I say credential policy, what I mean is not using your corporate credentials on anything unrelated to the business. Don't use it to create your Facebook account. Don't use it to create, always pick on the, the site because it's not assigned to anything yet. I love knitting.com, right? So don't use it to don't use it to sign up for your favorite hobbyist site because the bad guys um, are, are, are getting the credentials out of those sites and using them against us. Obviously, we talk a lot about multi-factor authentication. That solves a lot of problems. So if you didn't do the first few things I said, in many cases, MFA would, would solve that for you. Patching, you know, I've been in cybersecurity for my entire adult life. And, you know, I understand the complexities and organizations around patching, but I would say that even the basic patching seems to still be an issue. Not not talking about industrial control systems. We're just talking about people's laptops, their Safari browsers, or whatever they're using, and or their cell phones. And so, you know, I, I make this joke when I when I do public talks about it. I was like, I know it's really annoying when you're having a great Wordle game, you know, to update your cell phone, but do it anyway. You know, and I know you're like doom scrolling on Reddit and you don't want to reboot your browser, but do it anyway uh, and, and make that part of the policy and part of the cyber hygiene of the organization. Yeah, I love these tips and you can't stress them enough. Right. So how much is the cyber skills gap impacting ransomware? Some may see this as a separate business issue, but do you see connections? Very much so. And I, I love this question because uh, it's it's sort of a passion project of mine. There's a supply and demand issue with sort of cybersecurity talent that leaves the bulk of the market without people to help them, you know, with their cybersecurity gaps. And th- that's because because there's a shortage of talent, the mean average salaries that are commanded are all at the top of the market. People are economically driven are going to go in that direction. And so when you're in the mid-market or, or further down, your access to real cybersecurity expertise is, is almost non-existent. And it's and it's not getting any better. So so for for example, every cybersecurity incident slash ransomware attack we hear about on the news, there are thousands of small businesses that get hit that we don't hear about. If you're a dry cleaner or a print shop or a small accounting firm with five people, it is sort of unreasonable to expect you to understand and mitigate the risks associated with all of your technology adoption. I don't know how my cell phone works. Maggie, I have no idea, right? So I'm a tech guy my entire life. It's a magic box, right? So to expect these people to understand all of those things is unreasonable. So how do we get that level of basic cybersecurity talent to those folks? And I, I I have a nonprofit that works on that problem. But yes, I do think it's impacting, you know, the national security of the United States and the economy. Yeah, it's good to hear your thoughts on that. Switching gears a little bit, last year, the insurance company AXA announced it would suspend cyber insurance policies in France that reimburse companies for ransomware payments. 
This was in response to a request from cyber officials in the French government who were trying to stem the tide of ever-increasing ransomware attacks. What's been the fallout since then, and has it had an effect on the situation? I do think that there's an issue with those kinds of things like the making ransoms illegal. It's, it's sort of like telling your constituents to take one for the team. You know, you couple this question with the question that you asked previous, which is like, look, you're asking people who have no capability to defend themselves to just basically die on the cross for for everyone else so that nobody pays. I don't think that that's a reasonable approach to solving the problem. And it's probably going to have it'll be a while before it's noticed, but a larger impact on the economics of that country. And so I, I think the the sort of education and cyber skills thing is the right way to, to approach that rather than sort of these punitive policies. Could something like what happened in France happen here in the US? It's possible. You know, you know how politics are. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, it's 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 possible. I do I, I do have some hope because I, I believe the folks at CISA, you know, Jenny Easterly and, and, and her team are are looking at this through the correct lens, which is a, more of a preventative and, and supporting program. Uh, and, and they're driving some of that policy. And I'm, I'm doing everything I can to educate lawmakers in the House and Senate about the reality of this and the potential long-term damage and impact from it. Of course, it's possible, but I do think that it's incumbent on us technical experts who are in the field and in the trenches to educate the lawmakers, both locally and and uh, at the national level, at every chance we get about what this is really about and what it's really like to be a victim and what the, the circumstances are around those attacks for those victims, like having no access to cyber talent, you know, so that they, they don't look at this as is a purely uh, negative uh, situation or look at the, the victim from a negative perspective because they're like the rest of us. They're just doing their job. They're, <laughs> they're doing the best they can. And, you know, you, and especially small businesses who just went through COVID and then they went through supply chain issues and now it's this. And to, to tell them that, you know, you just, you really just have to go out of business or break the law. Then the other side effect, by the way, of the legal approach to this is that some, some folks in the government believe that you know, if we just make it illegal, people will stop paying ransoms and the bad guys will stop attacking. And the fact is, is more than likely what will happen is you will drive behavior underground. If I have a choice, you know, as a small business, like I'm going to lose my small business that I've worked on for 18 years or break the law, but maybe not get caught, I'm going to probably lean toward the second one. Um, I want to keep my employees. I want to keep my investment. And so what you're going to lose is visibility to the macro level of these attacks. And I, that is, and I think Sista believes this too. And, and I, I hope they stick with it. Yeah, this is such a tough situation. Yes. So I know we've been talking a lot about some serious topics, and I'd like to end this podcast on a positive note. So let me just ask you this. What's one of your favorite success stories? Maybe a situation where, you know, it was dire at first, but things really just worked out. Oh, we have a bunch of those. And some of them are similar to the scenario where the the backups, you know, save the day. I will say that there's always a little bit of fine print on those scenarios because keep in mind the threat actors did take a copy of a bunch of data. They will sell it and or dump it in most cases. There's a funny side note to that anecdote as well, where depending on the threat actor, they, they have such a volume of victims that sometimes they just forget. <laughs> we've had that happen. We're like waiting for them to dump the data like they threatened and they just never do. They just forget. They move on to the next, they've got 200 victims and they move on to the next one. So that, that we've had a couple scenarios like that. We've had scenarios where we were able to convince the threat actors as a form of proof to publish 
the files on the dark web that they had stolen and we were able to pull down the most critical configuration files and things like that and restore. Uh, so we've had some really good ones like that. My favorites, though, are the impact of the prevention programs and the, the nonprofit work that we're doing, where we're literally helping small businesses make these changes for free uh, while simultaneously solving the cyber skills gap. And that's that's my favorite thing is because the, the attack doesn't even happen. We're, we're in front of it. And that, that's the best. That is the best. And I'm glad there's people like you out there to help help us solve this problem. Thank you. Awesome. Well, it was so wonderful interviewing you today, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been talking with Curtis Minder, the founder and CEO of the cyber reconnaissance firm GroupSense. If you'd like to read more about ransomware, check out Focal Point, Tanium's new online cyber news magazine. We've got links to several articles in the show notes or go to tanium.com. To hear more conversations with today's top business leaders and security experts, make sure to subscribe to Let's Converge on your favorite podcast app. And if you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating. Thank you for listening. We look forward to sharing more cyber insights on the next episode of Let's Converge.